Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This morning we do, we start into the book of Exodus, and I'm excited for this. I want to kind of give just a brief introduction to the book of Exodus, because for some of us, it's as foreign as, you know, Canada or whatever else, right? It's just not something that we know much about. The book of Exodus seems a mystery to us at times. We spent a, a, about a year and a half, uh, a few years ago, going through the book of Genesis, and now there's a continuation of that story that I'm excited to kind of dig into uh, as we approach the book. There's a, a basic structure that you'll see on the, on the slide ahead of us. In chapters 1 through 18, there's this description of a delivering God. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, God actually gives us his name, Yahweh, here in the book of Exodus. And one of the themes is just the the divulsion of who God is, not just in his name, but in his character. He's showing us about himself. And so in chapters 1 through 18, we see a delivering God, a God who is a God who, who rescues Egypt out of, or Israel, out of Egyptian slavery. In chapters 19 through 34, we see a directing God. We see God give us the Ten Commandments and give us instructions for tabernacles and other things. And we'll talk through that when we get there. Chapters 35 through 40 show us a dwelling God. As God dwells with his people, as he inhabits the tabernacle, he comes and lives with his people, amongst his people. And so this is the trajectory of the book of of Exodus. A.W. Pink has told us that one of the major themes in the book of Exodus is redemption. In fact, we might call it the central theme. God takes a people that's far off in slavery and brings them near to himself. And it's this story of God's redeeming work of buying back his people from their sinfulness. In fact, he highlights Exodus 15, 13, where Moses writes this about God. He says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. See, Exodus is the story of moving away from slavery in a foreign land being brought home to the presence of God and instruction of God. That's why we open this book, and I think it's an exciting time for us as a church. As we look at Exodus 1, here's what I think we're going to find. God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. I don't think I'm going to have to convince you that this is true. I think my job this morning is to compel you to trust that God's promises never fail. I think if we were to pull you aside this morning and say, do you believe in God's promises to a man? We would all say, yes, I believe that God's words are true, that they're trustworthy. But on a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock, when the boss is kind of pressing you, uh, when there's uh, diapers to be changed yet again at home, when, when it's time to clean the house and you don't want to, when, when things are pressing on you, that's the question. So this morning, we want to compel ourselves through the, the testimony of the Word of God to this idea that God's promises never fail. We're going to see this in three different movements. In fact, what happens throughout this passage is that every time Israel is pressed with a, a, a difficult situation, God allows them to multiply. Every time Israel goes through some type of suffering, 
God multiplies them. In fact, it's kind of underlined three different times in our text. In verse 7, God multiplies Israel. In verse 12, God multiplies Israel. In verse 20, God multiplies Israel. And so the three different movements kind of center around that. In verses 1 through 7, Israel multiplies in a foreign land. In verses 8 through 14, Israel multiplies under harsh slavery. And then in 15 through 20, Israel multiplies under murderous oppression. And so we want to dive in this morning in our first time here in Exodus chapter 1. If you're reading in the Pew Bibles with me, I'm on page 45, and we're going to start in verse 1. There, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. See, what happens is that the... uh, this opening to the book of Exodus actually invites us to review some history from Genesis and then gives us new information that kind of pushes us into Exodus. And so the sons of Israel are reviewed here in these first five verses, right? Starts with this kind of genealogy kind of like statement that happens there in verses one through three, where Jacob has these 12 sons. It pulls us back into the statements in Genesis. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, Genesis tells us the story of starting in chapter 12 and moving through the end of the book about Abraham and promises made to Abraham and then promises made to his son Isaac and then promises made to Isaac's son Jacob. And then those promises extended to Jacob's 12 sons, which we've just listed here this morning. But Jacob would be renamed Israel, and so that's why the author uses that term here. And by the end of the book of Genesis, Uh, Jacob, or Israel, and his 12 sons have moved to Egypt because they were trying to avoid death, right? They were going to starve. There was no food where they were. But through God's providence, one of Jacob's sons, which had been betrayed by his other son, uh, other sons, excuse me, Joseph went down to Egypt uh, through interpreting dreams and other acts of God had made a, a storehouse of food. So sure enough, he could provide not only for Jacob's family, but for all the nations. Here in Exodus 1, we get the name of all of these 12 sons, and we get their location, that they came into Egypt, and they even came from Jacob, as Genesis 46 records. They brought Jacob with them. But we also get some new information. Jacob's 12 sons died in verse 6. We would naturally assume that to be the case. There's not still in Egypt these 12 sons, or in Israel these 12 sons that are living But here, Exodus brings us beyond the bounds of Genesis and starts to tell us another story. And part of this story that's going to happen is this multiplication of the nation of Israel. Look at verse 7 with me. Look at what is highlighted there. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, right? I mean, the author here is highlighting again and again this multiplication that's happening in the nation of Israel. Now, this isn't new to us. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, there's been these terms that have been used throughout the book of Genesis where God has called his people to be fruitful and multiply. 
Now, some of you here still take that command very seriously, right? We can't keep our nursery large enough. Like you guys keep having babies, which is a good thing. I praise God for that. I say there's two ways to grow a church, right? There's the the natural method and the supernatural method. And I'll take either one. But Israel here is called to multiply. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. When Noah gets off the boat, God says to him, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 28, verse 3, God also Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. In chapter 35, verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. He says to, to Jacob, I believe in Genesis 48, 48, right? Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me and lose in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Time and time again, God is coming to his people and saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. But look at what happens in Exodus 1 verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Literally, the language that's used here is of a swarm. Like they're multiplying and multiplying like rabbits. They're just coming out of every porous there in Egypt, right? Such that they fill the land. These Israelites were fruitful. They multiplied. They filled the place they were in. And despite their displacement, they delivered babies, right? They were expats with exponents. That's a stupid thing I made up, but I was really entertained by it myself. See, God uses difficulty for his purpose. God uses difficulty for his purpose. Just consider the difficulty of being in a foreign place. They've had this land of Canaan promised to them, and here they were stuck in Egypt for 400 years. God uses difficulty for his purpose. Now, we want to just zero in on this concept here for a second, because God moved Israel to Egypt. We have no reason to believe from our text that there's any kind of sin that Israel performed that made them go to Egypt. In fact, what we have is a number of statements from God that this was God's plan all along. I'm going to invite you to look on the screen in Genesis 15. God planned Israel's oppression. He knew it would happen. So in Genesis 15, 13, he says, know for certain, this is God speaking to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God knew exactly what was going to happen to them. And God actually called Jacob down into Egypt. And in Genesis 46, God speaks to, to Jacob and says this, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. See, he promises that he will go with Jacob into Egypt, that he won't abandon him. And he promises to bring him back out of Egypt. Another thing that happens in Genesis 15, as we go to the next slide here, is that God actually promises, he gives the reason for why they have to go away for 400 years. He says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What are we talking about here, right? There's this people that have just piled sin upon sin. And God is getting ready to judge this people. But in the day of Abraham, that sin hadn't quite reached its peak yet. And so in 400 years, when God brings them back, he's going to displace these people by giving his people that, the land that he's promised them. See, God obviously has a purpose between the creation of Israel and their inheritance of the land. He wants to allow the iniquity of the Amorites to accumulate so that when Israel dispossesses them of the land, God is righteous to do so. See, God is using the suffering of this nation to make a great nation. The suffering of these 70 people who come down to Egypt to form them into a great nation. In fact, that was his promise to Abraham, right? I will make you a great nation. Part of the way he does that is through suffering and difficulty. This was God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He was going to make them into a great nation. That is, God was going to take these 70 people and turn them into a nation while they were in Egypt, far away from home, far away from the land that God had promised them. Part of God's means to accomplish this purpose was suffering and difficulty. But part of that suffering, only a part of that suffering is their displacement. Another part of their suffering is this harsh slavery that's described in verses 8 through 14. Look at verse 8 with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See, the king of Egypt taxes Israel with this new labor in verses 8 through 11. We understand that there's a new king in verse 8 that doesn't know Joseph. We're not really sure whether he just doesn't know him. It's four generations removed, and so he just forgot about the Israelites, or this might actually recognize like a change in power so that another family is in leadership there in Egypt. We don't really know, but the bottom line is that he no longer has any kind of uh, affinity for or uh, feels beholden to the nation of Israel. In fact, he's going to deal very shrewdly with them. In fact, that's what happens there. The king is afraid of Israel in verses 9 and 10. Israel's increase in population kind of leads to some fear uh, that these people are more numerous than the 70 people they started out as. And, And notice specifically what he's afraid of in verse 10, right? If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us, and they escape from the land. It's ironic, isn't it, that the very thing that they're trying to stop is the very thing that happens by the time Genesis 15 or Exodus 15 rolls around. It's the action that sets in motion, this action sets in motion a series of events ending in God's deliverance of Israel. And so this king 
does something stupid. He lays a heavy burden on these Israelites. It starts with a simple required labor, right? Israel was required to build these store cities of Pithom and Ramses. In fact, if you look up the word Pithom, it actually means city of justice, ironically stated, right? We can naturally assume that these store cities uh, probably housed a lot of the wealth that had been accumulating from Joseph's time. And so the Israelites are called upon to build things that are just injustice and uh, wrong. But notice God blesses them in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So the more Pharaoh kind of presses down on them, the more they have babies and the more they spread abroad, the more they fill up the land of Egypt. And so verse 13 tells us that that Pharaoh responds again in deeper slavery yet, right? Look at the the words that are used to describe. There's ruthless labor in verses 13 and 14. They were bitter. Their lives were bitter with hard service in verse 14. This gives us this window into this ongoing loop of this cycle that's happening in Egypt, right? There's this cycle of oppression where Israel multiplies. Egypt becomes afraid of them. And so Egypt oppresses Israel so that Israel multiplies. And this is something that we see all the time. As God is continually faithful to Israel, Egypt is responding in hatred and oppression. And this will kind of play out through the remainder of the story uh, with Egypt as Pharaoh kind of just continues to press down on these Israelites. See, what looks like, excuse me, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 12, the, the story made to, or the promise made to Abraham where God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse plays out before our very eyes here in the book of Exodus. See here, as Egypt tries to curse Israel, they seal their fate. See, what looks like difficulty is God's means of blessing here, isn't it? God works all things to good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose from Romans chapter 8. What looks like poverty is the end of a materialistic heart. What looks like uh, you know, health issues is actually the beginning of an eternal perspective. See, in God's economy, death consistently becomes resurrection in those who trust in him. I know there's a lot of people here who face all kinds of hardships right now. Some of you face marital difficulty. Some of you face troubles and difficulties at work. Some have rebellious or wayward kids. Some of you kids have rebellious and wayward parents. Christian, God is not absent in these things. In fact, on the other side of such trials, there's purpose and intention. So Israel is afflicted because they're displaced. They're afflicted because they're exposed to hard labor. Finally, they're afflicted because they're exposed to this murderous oppression that happens in verses 15 through 22. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife, uh, excuse me, when you serve as, serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh directs this murderous scheme. We need to stop and just ask a pretty basic question. It seems to us that Pharaoh has asked Hebrew women to put Hebrew children to death. Now, this text can mean two different things, right? There's either midwives who are Hebrews themselves, or there are midwives who work with the Hebrews. They're actually Egyptian women. But either way, these women are called upon to do something unthinkable, so that when a child is born, if the child is a son, they are to be put to death while they are still on the birth stool, right in front of the mother, right in front of the father, put to death directly there. Notice it's not just saying male children or female children. Our text is telling us sons and daughters. I wonder how much of the abortion industry would be changed if we started referring to fetuses or babies as sons and daughters. See, these sons are put to death, but daughters are to live. Why is that? Why why are daughters let live, but sons are put to death? Notice this. It's just sheer genocide, right? If you only allow the daughters to live, they'll surely intermarry with other races. And so therefore, the Hebrew people will be gone within a generation or two. And so what we're doing is we're eradicating an entire people and we're integrating them into the Egyptian culture fully. So these Hebrew midwives are a means of grace. Notice what they choose to do in verses 17 through 19. These Hebrew midwives choose to fear God and give an account to Pharaoh. Verse 17 tells us that Shifra and Pua fear God. They fear God. It's the opposite of fearing Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's dealing with people with this blasting of power. He's dealing with them in this strong-handed kind of way. And Shifra and Pua stand up and say, no, we fear the Lord. Every time I hear the name Pua, I think of Akuna Matata for whatever reason. I don't know why. But here these two women are standing in fear of the Lord, not giving way to fear of man. They choose not to obey Pharaoh's order. Instead, they choose to fear the Lord, knowing that murdering these children would be a great wrong. Look at the excuse they give in verse 19. Why, why are you not putting these Hebrew sons to death? Why are you not doing as I've instructed you? Verse 19, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them, right? Hebrew women are just faster at birth than the Egyptian counterparts. There's all kinds of, uh, we would call them microaggressions today, right? There's cultural annotations that are stated there. By the time these women arrived, the babies were born and off the birth stool. And so therefore, they could not put them to death on the birth stool like they were instructed. Now, we have to understand there's probably some undermining, some pre-communication that's happening here where 
Simone and Pua, or whatever their names are, Shifra and Pua, go to them and they say, hey, listen, when you're about to have a baby, don't call us. Don't call us. Birth the baby by yourself so that when we show up, they're off the birth stool. So God seems to protect these women, protect these children. God blesses them in their obedience. In verses 20 through 21, God deals well with Shifra and Pua. They have families. There's some that think that, that Shifra and Pua were, were probably people who couldn't have children of their own. And that's why they worked in this field where they didn't have husbands or they didn't have families of their own. And so they worked in this field where they would go and deliver others' children. And thus, there's a turning of the tide for them that as they've acted faithfully in the fear of God, God opens up their wombs and allows them to have families of their own. But he doesn't just deal well with Shifra and Pua. Look at what he does. He multiplies Israel again. In verse 20, they multiply and grew very strong. I would love to tell you that's the end of the story, right? I'd love to tell you that this was the end of everything. Shifra and Pua did their job. Pharaoh thought better of himself. But what Pharaoh actually does is he doubles down. What was stated in a quiet backroom discussion to two women is now stated openly for the nation to hear. Verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. What started as this kind of backroom policy has now become an open policy for the nation. All Egypt is to see that this murderous plot takes place. And what's the means of death? The Nile River. Isn't it interesting that a few chapters from now, when when these plagues come on the land of Egypt, what's the first thing that God does? He turns the Nile to blood. He says, Pharaoh, your guilt starts right here. In the midst of this, we step away from such a story that's filled with so much suffering, so much heartache, so much difficulty. We recognize that underneath all of that suffering and difficulty, there are promises that were made back in the book of Genesis. Promises to multiply. Promises to make a great nation. See, God's words are unthwartable. I just made that word up. I hope you like it. What promises are we talking about? I might invite you to look back at Genesis chapter 3. If you would look back at Genesis chapter 3, there's one specific promise that I think we want to zero in on this morning. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your, what, offspring and her offspring. He, that's the seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy about Jesus that we have in the Bible. And it promises to Adam and Eve, this son, this seed that would come forth, that would actually defeat the serpent, that would actually defeat sin and Satan. 
And so there, in the midst of this, we have this promise that, that Jesus would come, that he would defeat sin, but it had to come through this progeny, through this seed, through this son that was going to be born to Adam and Eve, probably son or great-grandson or great-great-great-great-grandson, right? But it's not just that. In Genesis chapter 12, there's a promise made to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And when Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, he says that there's a seed through which that promise will come true. That's Jesus, right? See, it has always been Satan's strategy to snuff out the seed, whether it's Exodus chapter 1, where where Pharaoh is murderous with all the sons of Israel, or it's Matthew chapter 2, where Herod is killing all of the infant children in this particular city in Bethlehem, whether it was the crucifixion where Satan is seeing to it that Judas betrays him and sends him to the cross. Satan is always trying to snuff out the seed. Jesus was to be killed so that the seed couldn't defeat him. Jesus was to be killed so that he couldn't bless the nations. All through the scriptures, we're having the same fight where Satan's trying to put away the seeds of of Abraham because he knows that his head is going to be crushed. Because he knows that one is going to rise in victory and put him down for eternity. See, it was by God's plan for suffering that Jesus became blessing, right? First Peter chapter 3 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, what? To bring you to God. That's what he's doing. He's raising up the seed so that through his suffering, you and I can be blessed, That's the beauty of what God is doing here in Exodus 1. He's preserving the seed. I love what Isaiah 55 records. We've probably heard this passage so many times. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, you know, as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that don't come out from my mouth, but they return to me, right? They don't, uh, they, excuse me, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, right? We, we have heard these verses before that God's word never returns void, but it goes on to describe this situation in Isaiah 55 that goes like this, that You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, right? So we would expect that if rain falls on the mountainside, what's it going to bring forth? Thorns and thistles. But what God's word is telling us here is that when his word goes out, brings forth myrtle trees, and something else that's not thorns and thistles. See, what God's word accomplishes is blessing when it has accomplished its purpose in us. God's words deal or will eventually show up in good things for us. This morning, some of us are in the midst of various kinds of suffering. upon us then when we're suffering to cling to God's promises. Just think about this for a second. Present hardship 
clears the way for future grace. Present hardship clears the way for future grace. My wife works at the school, and she was a she was a substitute teacher in a health class. And so she came back because she had to watch this video like five times during the day. And she told me about this story, uh, about this study that was done about um, by immunologists that we didn't even know existed before COVID, right? We didn't even know immunology was a thing. But immunologists have figured out that the more you're exposed to species of very kind, various kinds, the more your immune system is ready to ward off disease. So the more you trudge through sewage, the better off you are in terms of your immune system. Athletes know that for a muscle to grow, it has to be exposed to the load that maximizes it, right? You have to, you have to lift the weights. You have to press your muscles to grow. See, for us to grow, we have to go through the sewage. We have to go through the difficulty. We have to do the hard things, right? This present hardship clears the way for us to grow in the future, to experience God's goodness and his blessing. Particularly, God introduces worldly difficulty so that we seek heavenly solutions. Christian, the circumstance you find yourself in is no coincidence. God is using your circumstances, even if it's self-wrought, to grow you, to strengthen you, to bless you. We have to be able to see through this, don't we? We have to be able to see through our current circumstance and see the goodness and mercy of God that comes to us. We have to be able to say, uh, you know, with Paul, you know, God works all things to good. He works this bad situation to good. I love what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot says. We know what Elizabeth Elliot, can't say her name apparently, Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of the missionary Jim Elliot, who died in South, South America, bringing the gospel to um, native tribes down there. She says this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Isn't that what we do? We beg and plead for God to change our circumstance. God, remove this situation. Help my child. Help my parent. Do this. Change my circumstance. Change what's going on around me. But in truth, what God desires to do is change in you, not change around you. So I want to give a few pieces of encouragement this morning, a few pieces to help us move forward. Three different things. First, seek God's promise. Secondly, patiently wait for God's promise. Thirdly, thank God for moments of grace. First, seek God's promise. If God's promise is the thing that he's doing in the world, our circumstances are only distractions from the promise that he's given us. And so the work we have to do is to study, to memorize, to kind of dig out the promises of God that he's given us in his word and cling to them. Train your heart to cling to otherworldly promises so that your heart and soul don't long for earthly solutions. 
cling to these delicate, precious promises that God has given to us. <laughs> so we seek God's promise. We patiently wait for God's promise. In moments of difficulty, pray these promises back to God. In the Wednesday afternoon when you feel pressed and pressured, pray back to God. God, I know you're working all things to good. You can pray back to God. Lord, help me to seek the things above like Colossians 3 tells me to. We can pray those things back to God and all the while, it's changing the state of our heart to trust in the promise more than the circumstance. And finally, we can thank God for moments of grace. Grace. Some of us are really bad about this. I myself am included. In moments of, 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 of kind of self-inspection, we get lost in all of the um, hang-ups that we have. We struggle to see how we've grown hunt for any sign of growth that God has given you. Thank God that he has allowed you to grow in this way. And thank God for his presence with you, knowing that he's bringing about those promises that he's given you. Every little bit of growth helps us remember that God's still working. He's still present with us. He's still doing what he's told us he will accomplish. And he's allowing us to see that little bit of growth. This morning, I want to pray that God allows us to fight through our difficult circumstances, to see the promise of Christ, to see that God has brought Christ through all of the difficulty so that we could receive blessing. But sometimes we ourselves also have to fight with difficulty. I want to pray to that end. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would use your words to change us. Lord, despite whatever our circumstance in life is, Lord, help us to see the promises that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for examples like Shifra and Pua, who out of fear for you did what was right. So Lord, make us a people who also fear you. Make us a people who also listen and glorify your name in our midst. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.